0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I'm going to start with the marriage at Cana in today's Gospel reading, and then go on to the gifts of the Spirit as described in 1 Corinthians. The marriage at Cana is the occasion of Jesus's first sign, John tells us. It will be the first of seven. John tells us that it happens on the third day. And the story looks forward to the resurrection at the end of the gospel, which is also on the third day. John's gospel is like that, and we have to be constantly on the alert for this kind of linking of one part of the story to another. On the third day, there was a wedding. Weddings now can be wonderful. I'm thinking of Justin and Mariah Hawkins's service here at St. John's last ball where this passage about Cana was the text for the sermon by Justin's father. But weddings in America now are different from weddings in the ancient Near East. I got closer to this when I went to the island of Crete when I was 17, to a part of the island that was deeply traditional. The wedding was outside the house, under the vines, and the bridegroom's party had made a procession from his neighbouring village the night before. The wedding took several days and involved a great deal of drinking. The bride was wearing her mother's wedding dress, and she was a little too large for it. In the middle of the ceremony the dress burst open at the back and her mother went into the house to fetch a needle and thread and while the liturgy was going on stitched her daughter back into the dress this was important because the liturgy required the couple to dance together around the altar None of the locals seemed to be embarrassed at all, and the dress-stitching was just part of the fun. But the hospitality of the bride's family was serious business. The honor of the family was at stake in the lavish provision of food and drink. If the wine had run out, That would not have been merely embarrassment, but long-lasting shame. On the first level of understanding this story, Jesus shows that he cares about this possible disgrace for the family, and he intervenes to prevent it. There were, John tells us, Six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Six, note, like the six days of creation, and the sixth hour when Jesus met the woman at the well and the sixth hour when Pilate said, Behold your king. Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. This phrase, to the brim, holds much meaning. Literally, the Greek says, they filled them to the up, Ace to Anno. Anno means up. Jesus' gospel is full of language about the up or above and the down or below. Anno and kato. In the next chapter, when Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus by night, Jesus tells him that he must be born again. And literally, the word again is from the up. Ano Jesus tells the Pharisees in chapter 8, you are from below, and I am from above. Ano. You are of this world, and I am not from this world. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus that he must, he must be born from the up, from above, he means from where Jesus himself is from. Jesus is from the Father. And he tells us that we can enter into this love that is between the Father and the Son by the presence in us of the Spirit. This is the new creation through the resurrection. Catherine Green Christ talked to us last week about our font at St. John's because we had a baptism. I have discussed this with her and she wants you to know that the font itself is six sided and its cover above it is eight sided. The font is still from below like the six stone water jars which are for the water of purification. The water of baptism is still from this world, merely natural, and it needs the work of the spirit from above before it can actually purify us from our sins. The resurrection is the eighth day of creation, symbolized in the font's eight-sided cover. Six days of creation, God's blessing on the seventh day and the new creation through the resurrection on the eighth. So Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars to the up, ace ano, all the way up to where they're ready for the great change, which will happen from the up, ano sen. The water is ready to become. Wine. But when does it become wine? My interpretation of this comes from my Uncle Stephen, who took me to Crete. The water becomes wine as it is drawn out from the stone water jars. Do you remember Reverend Chuck telling us the story a few weeks ago? of the bishop in Massachusetts, blessing the boats and saying that the boats are blessed in their use. This is why John emphasizes twice the drawing out from the jars. Now draw some out, he says, and take it to the chief steward. And then the steward did not know where the wine had come from, I quote, though the servants who had drawn the water, knew. Note, John tells us, they'd drawn the water. So it was still water. And then they drew it. And as they drew it, it became wine. This whole story is about a sign. The first sign. And signs point to something outside themselves. I think John is pointing to the truth that we are water that can become wine through the power of the resurrection. But first, we have to be filled up all the way to the up. And then we can think of a second filling, a different filling, being filled from above as we're drawn out to be in service to others. For myself, I think of being drawn out in the last three years or so of my wife Terry's life, as she could do less and less for herself. And I felt myself being changed out of my habits of self-preference. Fill me, use me. Spirit of the Living God. The wine was drawn out and distributed to the guests at the wedding feast, which itself points forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and the new earth. What does it mean to be filled all the way to the up? I think it means that we offer ourselves completely, without holding anything back, leaving, as it were, no empty space to resist the filling from above. Being filled with the spirit is different from this first filling, the filling with water. When you fill a jar with water, you are excluding the air, eliminating it, pushing it out, but when you're filled with a spirit, the whole of you is being used. It's being put to service. When the water is changed into wine, the oxygen and the hydrogen remain, but they are reconfigured. They're not eliminated. My own experience of losing Terry is like this. I have been filled to the brim with grief, and I've sometimes not known how I could go on, but I have been wholehearted in this grief, holding nothing back because I could not hold anything back. And God's Spirit can take this full vessel and reconfigure the water and the wine. Being born again or born from above is like this. It's not as though before the rebirth, we speak Russian and play the trombone. And then after rebirth, we speak Greek and play the harp. The spirit in filling us from above uses what we already are. Our talents, our character, our history but reconfigures it in the service of the kingdom of God. And God gives us the time and the place where this service is to happen. This is why Jesus says to his mother, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. I think John wants us to look forward to the time when Jesus says to his mother and John himself at the crucifixion, Woman, here is your son. This form of address on both occasions, woman, though it strikes us as rude, was a conventional form of respect. But we need to look forward also to when Jesus says in his last public discourse, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knew that Cana was not the time and place for his final and consummating service of death and resurrection. When that hour does come, he tells us that already at Cana, He gives us a sign pointing towards it. This brings us to the gifts of spirit and the teaching of 1 Corinthians 12. I want to make two general points about these gifts, and then I will talk a little about the individual gifts. The first point is, the gifts are given by the one spirit for the common good." Paul is emphasizing that though the gifts are different and for different people, they are gifts from one source and for one purpose, to build up the body of Christ. He says, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The nine gifts mentioned here are given to different people. In this way, they are not like the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which is described in the singular, fruit. Not fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit the fruit of love, joy, peace and so on, is supposed to characterize the life of every Christian as a whole cluster. It does not call for specialization, as though some are to have love and others joy and others peace. But the gifts are spoken of in the plural, gifts. And Paul is giving a partial list of the gifts given by the Spirit two different people. But even so, they're given by one spirit for the common good. The spirit knows what the body of Christ needs at each place and time and gives the gifts so that these needs can be met in a coherent way that is good for the whole body. The second point is that these gifts are all what Paul calls activities or Activations, in Greek, energeimata, and the spirit is the one who activates them, energe. In the Greek, I'm sorry I'm Greek, so much Greek. In the Greek, an energema is an activity or activation where the ergo, the function or work of a thing, is already made to be manifest in the thing. En er The thing is being used for what it is for. Perhaps that's important here. Do you ever have the sense that the Spirit has put you in just the place where, because you are just the person you are, you're gifted to do God's work? I remember one time when I was in graduate school and it was late and I was just getting into my pajamas and going to bed. when I had the sense that one of my friends needed to talk to me. So I got back into my clothes and went over to his room and knocked on the door. And it turned out that he had just broken up with his girlfriend and was in deep despair, and we were able to talk. I think this was an energema, an activity activated by the Spirit for the good of Christ's body. Perhaps it was the gift Paul calls forms of assistance at the end of the chapter. I was being used because of who I was and the relationship I had with my friend. This is providential proximity. The water is being turned into wine as it is drawn out and distributed. We should remember that the wine is poured out for you and for many, and the bread is broken and distributed at the Eucharist. Now for the individual gifts. I do not believe these gifts were terminated with the death of the first apostles or with the early church. There is too much testimony of their continuation. I also do not think that these listed gifts should be the center of our Christian lives. Because they are given for special occasions by the Spirit. What is central is the gift in our lives of the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit then chooses to whom to give, which gifts, and when. Five of the nine gifts have to do with speaking. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, the word of wisdom, and the word of knowledge. About prophecy, Paul is going to say at the beginning of chapter 14, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. He's giving special weight to the first of these gifts of speech, And he tells us more. Those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy here is a special gift given supernaturally. When a member of the body needs special upbuilding or encouragement or consolation. But prophecy is more than just this kind of encouragement. And in Jeremiah and Amos, it can be fierce. That's a different sermon. Tongues, the second gift, is a gift of a word in a different language, as the apostles at Pentecost began to speak with other tongues. This word then has to be interpreted, which is the third gift. As Paul goes on to talk about this gift in chapter 14, it doesn't sound like the kind of tongues used for a person's own walk with God, which does not call for interpretation and is not for other members of the body in need. The word of wisdom and the word of knowledge are not further described in this text either. Augustine, commenting on this passage in his work on the Trinity, says that Paul distinguishes the two, though, I quote, he does not there explain the difference. Augustine goes on to suggest that knowledge has to do with things of this earth, temporal things, whereas wisdom has to do with divine or eternal things. But this might be overreading. Another suggestion is that the word of wisdom, well, the word of knowledge, has to do with what is the case. As when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And the word of wisdom has to do with ought to be the case, what ought to be the case. As where Jesus says to the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give to the poor. He sees into the young man's heart and sees the obstacle that is keeping him from the kingdom of God. The other four gifts mentioned here are the gifts of faith, healings, miracles, and discernment of spirits. The gift of faith cannot be, in this context, the faith that all Christians are called to have. It must be the gift of an extraordinary measure of faith, given for the accomplishment of a seemingly impossible task. We need to believe, when we undertake something, that it can be achieved. Sometimes people are given an extraordinary gift of seeing in advance the substance of the thing hoped for, as Hebrews put it. The substance they believe is made possible through the working out of God's purposes for God's people. And sometimes this gift of extraordinary faith comes in anticipation of the gifts of miracles and healings. As when Jesus says to the woman with the hemorrhages, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Healings, in the plural, are also gifts given on special occasions, not dispositions given to individuals for their own activation. Tristan Mayhem preached a great sermon here a couple of years ago in which he described being given this gift on several occasions. And other members of this congregation have described to me this gift being given to them. It is never a guarantee for future occasions. And like all these gifts, it is the initiative of the Spirit, not of ourselves. I remember Phil Coy, who was sometimes given the gift for others, but did not receive the gift of healing by others for his own cancer, even though he hoped for it. Miracles are gifts given to accomplish something extraordinary for the kingdom. The Greek is dunamis, literally powers. When Paul returns to the gifts at the end of the chapter, the list has become eight rather than nine. The New Revised Standard Version translates apostles, prophets, teachers, deeds of power, gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. The lists are overlapping, not identical, but it is the same Greek word in both lists for miracles, even though NRSV translates differently as miracles the first time and deeds of power the second. The first of Jesus' signs, the turning of the water into wine at Cana. That is just such a deed of power. Then finally, the discernment of spirits. Paul's idea is that there are spiritual forces of good and spiritual forces of evil, and we need sometimes divine assistance to tell the difference because the evil can disguise itself as the good. Thus, Jesus starts talking to the disciples about the suffering that is to come. And Peter says to him, this has never happened to you, expressing what looks like love for his Lord. But Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. And then to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus is discerning the tempter lying behind Peter's expression of concern. I want to end by returning to Cana. There is one key difference between the water being changed into wine and us being changed by the work of the Spirit. The water does not choose to become wine. But we have to choose to be open to the Spirit. And we have to choose to be activated by the Spirit's gifts. Why would anyone choose to say no? It is because sometimes being open to the Spirit and being activated by the Spirit's gifts requires being broken, as the bread is broken at the Eucharist. We are most open when we are least secure in ourselves and our own powers. And this sometimes happens through suffering. I've learned this in my grief for Terry. Gerard Manley Hopkins describes this at the end of his great poem, The Windhopper. He writes of the charred logs at the end of the fire, breaking open to reveal the fire at their heart. Blue bleak embers are, ah, my dear, all call themselves, and gash gold a minute. But this breaking open is the way life comes to you, even in the presence of death. Even when you are at your wit's end, God has something good for you. Even if you do not now know what it is, but you have to be open to receive it. May God help us to do this, to be open to the Spirit. In Jesus' name.